Good morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful to again come apart to worship, to study. We ask for your spirit to join us, enlighten our minds, help us to become more effective at this time in history, to take a message that will transform hearts and hasten the day of your return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So our lesson today in the quarterly uh, God's Mission, My Mission, Lesson 13, is the end of God's mission. And the memory verse is, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for for and hastening the coming of the day of, the, of God? I love this verse, the inspiration, the hope, because this idea that we can somehow hasten and speed the coming of, of Jesus. Have you ever considered that? And if you consider, what can we do? What can we do that can help hasten the day? Spread God's word. Spread God's word. Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, I put for us individually to prepare ourselves. God waits patiently for all savable people to settle into the truth of salvation. So if there are choices in our own lives that we need to make in order to settle ourselves into absolute loyalty, devotion, and friendship, then that's our first duty and first responsibility. And then we want to, as the Bible says, take the gospel, the good news to the world. When the gospel of the kingdom is preached to, to the world, then the Lord will come. But, but as I thought about that, isn't it true that, that essentially every Christian would, would endorse that mission, take the gospel to the world? And if all Christians are doing that, why hasn't Jesus come? Hmm. Wrong message to the world. The people aren't ready. Has the gospel gone is the question. And and so is there some aspect of the gospel? Is it possible that what has gone to the world is is incomplete, is missing some vital truth or element, uh, and that history has somehow warped the gospel in a certain way that while part of the gospel has gone to the world, the, the final gospel, the eternal gospel that the three angels talks about is yet to go to the world. Do we have a gospel, a good news, that is eternally good news, eternally true in eternity past as well as eternity future, that is uh, somewhat different than what most of Christianity takes? Yes. That has a peace, that has an element that is left out of the traditional way of presenting it. What would you say is the missing piece that we have? The truth about God. His law. The truth about God. His law. Design law. Design law. And I'm going to suggest to you it's the truth about God's law, which when we recover that truth determines that question is determinant in how we understand God, his character, methods, principles, and government, even the plan of salvation. The the So in other words, we believe that Christ hasn't yet come because the true gospel in its fullest light has not been presented and that the truth about God's law, his law being design law, when we believe the truth about God's law being design law and how that operates, all love, law of liberty and so forth, then by worshiping a God who is the creator, the builder, the sustainer of reality, whose laws are design laws, we're going to unpack this through our lesson today, by beholding and worshiping him, we become changed. This is the law of worship. 
But if we substitute and impose law view, the idea that God's law works like human law, that belief then requires us to believe God in order to be just must use power to punish sinners. And we worship that God and we become like that God and become more authoritarian and more willing to use the power of the state to force what we think is right in order to save lives, and including coercing consciences. And, and we are duped into worshiping a being that we believe is the Bible God while we put the savior of the world on a cross and want him down before sunset in order to keep the Sabbath of the God that must punish us if we don't. And this is the problem throughout the entire great controversy. So we have a new magazine coming out in a few weeks. In fact, I'm going to release it on the second week. The plan is to release it the second week uh, in January when I'm there for potluck. It's entitled The Lie That Deceived Angels Infects Christianity and Delays the Second Coming of Christ. And in this magazine, we start by describing our motive. And what is our motive for all this? To hasten the day of the Lord. We want Jesus to come. We want the problem of sin to be over. And, and we then make the case that the Lord delays because he's waiting for the eternal gospel. The truth about him as in the setting of the great controversy to be presented to the world so that people can make a right decision and stop judging God to be an imperial dictator and start judging him to be the creator and the restorer of reality. And, then, and in order to, to eliminate sin from the universe, it requires more than simply destroying Satan. He has to destroy the lies that infect hearts and minds that cause rebellion and distrust of God. And those lies cannot be destroyed by might and power and force and coercion. So in this magazine, we describe the battle through history and how there were some reformers from a wide variety of backgrounds in the 19th century who were looking forward to the advent of the Messiah. And as they were moving forward in truth to discover the elements of the eternal gospel that would, would prepare the people to meet Jesus, they met a crisis as they began to present these very truths in 1888 when the legalistic leaders rejected this message and doubled down on the Roman view of Christianity that God's law works like human law and, and uh, sin requires the ruling authority to use his power to punish rule breakers. And then God is presented as a source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death as justice, of course, and must be appeased by a payment of blood in order not to hurt us. And this is the, the reason we're wandering in the wilderness. There's truth in there. Jesus died as our Savior. That's absolutely truth. Jesus is our substitutionary that's absolutely true. But it's presented in the lens that his the mechanism or means whereby he saves us is from the wrath and anger of God who will use his power to hurt us. And thus they teach a God that is the pagan view of God rather than the truth that Jesus revealed. And it all stems from how you understand law. And so we document from the published materials of a wide variety of Christian denominations that this idea of imperial Roman law infects all branches of Christianity, including the official Adventist church. Yet the message given to the reformers in the 19th century was to overthrow this Romanization of Christianity and call people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in the midst. So hopefully the second week of January when I'm there, we'll have copies available for you. Look at the first paragraph in our lesson. And it says, 
The book of Revelation fills the mind with scenes of the end. The epicenter of the book deals with the cosmic conflict between Christ and Satan. Christ, Satan has lost his legal hold over the earth, and now he pursues those who remain loyal to God. The book climaxes with Jesus' return to deliver his children, both the living righteous and those faithful who have died since the fall of Adam and Eve. The book shows us, too, the destruction of Satan and the wicked by fire and Jesus' establishment of his eternal kingdom on the earth made new. First question, what do you think of the sentence that says, Satan has lost his legal hold over the earth and now he pursues those who remain loyal to God? Has Satan ever had a legal hold over the earth? No. I would like to ask those who wrote it, what legal hold does Satan have? If one must use legal language, has Satan done anything legally or are all of his actions illegal actions? He started with deception. So that's not is that legal or is it illegal? It's illegal. So can someone do illegal acts to obtain legal holds? <laughs> He's a good lawyer. Only in this earth. <laughs> no, no, you actually can't. You can no, you can't. Not even on this earth. You cannot do illegal acts to get legal holds. You can only trick people into thinking your illegal acts are legal. But once they're proven to be illegal, then your legal hold is not actually legal. You have an illegal hold. So if we're actually talking about reality, even on this earth, illegal acts cannot result in legal holds. So what does it mean? That, so understand this. What does it mean that the lesson uses such language? How they see the law of God. Yes. Thank you. It is evidence, proof positive, that the authors have accepted, accepted the Romanized version of the Bible in Christianity, the lie that God's law functions like human law, a system of imposed rules with legal consequences. But this is all false. Satan has never had a legal hold. His hold has always been through deception, through lies, through falsehood. And the hold has been on the hearts and minds of intelligent beings, not upon territory. And his hold upon sinners is an illegitimate, an illegal hold. We are, according to Scripture, slaves to sin. But Satan doesn't hold us as slaves to sin legally. It is against the law of God and heaven to hold us as sin, sinners in sin. It is so sad, but this type of thinking, this distortion in the presentation of the gospel is exactly why the church has not finished the mission to give the gospel to the world and why Christ delays. It's exactly how we can hasten the day of Christ's return by rejecting this Romanization view of God's law and resetting all of the truths in the setting of the eternal gospel, the eternal good news. Do you see it? As I describe it, do you see this legal language creates a complete false paradigm? Or, or, or I hope I'm making my case, or do you think that Satan somehow did have a legal hold? Not legal. 
You all still with me? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we are with you. So when the Bible talks about in Corinthians that, that the weapon we do not wage wars the world does, the weapons we use are not worldly, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We go into court with our legal constitutional rights and we prove that uh, Satan, that Jesus paid the proper penalty and now that he's purchased the proper, with the proper penalty and filed the proper documents that we're able to destroy his legal claims to us because we have a better legal claim now. Is that what it says? No, <laughs> no we demolish all the argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. We are held captive in heart and mind by deception and it's an illegal attack. It, in other words, it goes against the law of God. The law of God is the law of truth and the law of love. And this breaks that law, makes it illegal. So his hold, whether it is any way you describe it, is never legal. It's always a violation of God's design, law, and government. It's so corrupt that we teach it this way. Because then it misrepresents God. And it puts God down in Satan's level and makes God a legalist. Consider this commentary from the book Desire of Ages in regard to Satan's legal hold. Do you agree with this commentary? It's in the page 129. When Satan declared to Christ, the kingdom and glory of the world are delivered unto me, and to whomever I will give it, he stated what was true only in part. He declared it to serve his own purpose of deception. Satan's dominion was that wrested from Adam, but Adam was the vicegerent of the creator. He was not an independent, his was not an independent rule. The earth was, is God's, and he has committed all things to his son. Adam was to reign subject to Christ. When Adam betrayed his sovereignty into the hands of Satan, Christ still remained the rightful, rightful king. Thus the Lord has said to King Nebuchadnezzar, the most high rules in the kingdoms of men, and gives it to whom he will. Satan can exercise his usurped authority only as God permits. Is usurped authority legal authority? No. 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 no, get your mind around this. Okay? So do you see how deeply the Roman lie of imposed law infects the Adventist system so that even though they have this commentary that they would claim is inspired, they still present the Roman view and reject this commentary? It's sad, guys. It's really sad. This is no different than in Christ's day. They had the inspired Old Testament. And Jesus said to them, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you find eternal life. But they are that which teaches of me, and you won't come to me that you might have life. They had the inspired writings. They read the inspired writings. They had doctoral degrees in the inspired writings. But they didn't understand them. They didn't understand the truth. Why? Because they had a presupposition, an assumption, this original lie, the lie that God is an imposer of laws and therefore the imposer of penalties. This is the lie that began the war in heaven. The same, com same book, Desire of Ages, in page 761, says in the opening of the great controversy, Lucifer declared the law of God cannot be obeyed. And then he goes on to say if, um, that every sin must meet its punishment, urged right. Satan. This is his lie from the beginning. What do you think of the last sentence? The book shows us, too, that the destruction of this last sentence from the quarterly, that the destruction of Satan and the wicked by fire and Jesus' establishment of his eternal kingdom on earth made new. That shows us that. What do you think of that sentence? 
does the way you understand God's law impact how you understand God, the, the, how you understand the destruction of the wicked, including Satan in the end? Uh, yes. How is the destruction of the wicked taught by those who accept Rome's view of God's law? If you believe God's law works like human law, then how is it taught that the wicked and Satan are destroyed in the end? They're going to be thrown in a pit of fire. Sin is law-breaking, and justice requires an infliction of punishment. Therefore, in the end, God uses his power not just to kill, but to inflict proper amounts of punishment to make them suffer their due course before he kills them. It's clear that they don't understand Isaiah 33. They clearly don't understand Isaiah 33 or much of Scripture. Uh, the same people will turn around and say that God is love, and all he wants is, is your love, and he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. But therefore, if, but if you don't love him, then he will use his power to torture and kill you. Do you understand this, this is a violation of God's actual design law, the law of liberty. You cannot get love without freedom. If you threaten to harm and torture people, you don't get love, you get rebellion. And why do you think Satan is so gleeful or happy or is it invested in having Christians teach that God is the source of inflicted torture and torment? Because he can have religious people taking the name of Christ, promoting his kingdom instead of that of Christ. Satan's goal to have the very people who claim to worship God teach lies that result in the destruction of love, increasing rebellion, and people staying in a system that uh, destroys their individuality, and if they stay in the system, will make them mindless pawns who merely look to an authority to tell them the answer. Very much like the Dark Ages church, where the people look to some clerical authority to tell them what to do and what to think. Do you not see this happening in the world today, both outside the church and in the church? That's what Satan wants. Satan wants to be a ruler where everyone is a plebe or a pawn serving him, doing what he tells them. That is not what God wants. Jesus said in John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants. Rather, I call you friends because servants don't understand their master's business. What God wants is actually understanding friends who comprehend and agree and serve willingly, agreeably, because we understand, love, and adore him. That's what God wants. Consider some of these historical quotes documenting the difference and the different message that was part of the founding of the Adventist movement, but, the, but this message got rejected and replaced with a Roman system in 1888. See, and, and, and this author continued to protest after 1888 with, with quotes like this, but it never really seemed to make it into the official teaching after that. See what you think. Which, which law, Roman imposed, requiring just, justice requiring punishment, or design law, do you hear in these quotations? This first one is from the Desire of Ages, page 22. The earth was dark through misapprehension of God, that the gloomy shadows might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God. Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. This could not be done by force. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. 
He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. His character must be manifested in contrast to the character of Satan. This work only one being in all the universe could do. Only he who knew the height and the depth and the love of God can make it known. Upon the world's dark night, the Son of Righteousness, referring to Jesus, must rise with healing in his wings. What law is this author describing here? What type of law? Design law. What, what is Satan's power? Lies. Lies, deceptive power, and then coercive force. And can the lie that God's laws imposed requiring God to use power to punish lawbreakers be refuted by using power to punish lawbreakers? <laughs> and that's what's taught. This is why the Lord hasn't come. This is why the delay. This is why the church is not finishing the mission because we keep presenting the three angels under the guise that God, in order to be just, will use his power to torture lawbreakers and kill them. So, what's required to destroy the lie? The truth. That God is the source of punishment and force and coercion. The truth. Yeah. The truth. Does that mean, simply mean a declaration of truth? Declare it to be so? or an objective demonstration of the truth lived out for all to see. And what do you see in the life of Jesus? When Peter pulled out his sword to use physical might and force, Jesus said, Matthew 26, 53, do not think I cannot call my father. He told him to put away a sword and said, do not think I cannot call my father. And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But then how... Would the scriptures be fulfilled that says it must happen this way? And then he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus revealed he does not use these methods of coercion and force. God in human form demonstrates that he does not use physical might or power to advance his kingdom. He could have used such methods, but they are contrary to the kingdom of God. They are contrary to his character of love. He can't win hearts and minds. He can't eliminate the lie that he's the source of inflicted pain by using force to inflict pain. And God is waiting for people today to fully throw off this idea that he functions like a creature and return to worshiping him as creator. Consider this historic quote, Zara of Ages 466. In the work of redemption, there is no compulsion, no external force is employed. Under the influence of the Spirit of God, man is left free to choose whom he, whom he will serve. In the change that takes place when the soul surrenders Christ, there's the highest sense of freedom. Is that true? If God is saying, listen, guys, I do love you, and I, I sent my son to die for you, but, but if you don't respond by loving me, I am required by law to torture and kill you. Are you then left free. Mm -hmm. 
No. And that's exactly why the Christ is delaying, because the gospel is still corrupted with this corrosive idea that undermines trust in God. Here's another quote. Consider this one. Selected Message, Volume 1, page 235. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself as those actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. What kind of law is described here? Sign law. So, can what's described here be true if God's law functions like human law? No, this, this, this quote is actually describing Galatians 6.8, where Paul writes to the Galatians, those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. It's describing what James wrote in James 1.15, sin, when full grown, brings forth death. That's what scripture teaches because God has created all the universe to operate in harmony with his design laws for life, which are a manifestation of his perfect character of love. And if we step out of harmony with those laws, we separate ourselves from the source of life and we suffer and we die. Another quote from the same author that states it explicitly from the book Great Controversy on page 36 God does not stand toward the sinner as an executioner of the sentence against transgression. Wait. What? Oh, wow. This is not what the church teaches. The church teaches exactly the opposite, that God does stand towards the executioner. And in fact, the book 27 Fundamental Beliefs, it says that he is required by law to execute justice on the sin and thus on the sinner. He becomes the executioner. So keep going with the quote. But he leaves the rejectors of his mercy to themselves to reap that which they have sown. James and James. Uh, uh, chapter 1 in, uh, in Galatians 6, 8. Every ray of light rejected, every warning despised or unheeded, every passion indulged, every transgression of the law of God is a seed sown which yields its unfailing harvest. The Spirit of God persistently resisted is at last withdrawn from the sinner. And then there is left no power to control the evil passions of the soul and no protection from the malice and enmity of Satan. There can be no doubt as to the message given to the reformers in the 19th century as to how we were to understand God's law. No doubt, it's very clear. But the, the, the legalist and the leadership didn't like it, so they rejected it. If we would give this message, if the organization would embrace this truth, then the world would be lighted and very quickly Christ would come. But Tim, if the church had proclaimed this message in 1888, none of us would have been born. That's true. And, and what does that mean? Whomever, whenever the Lord comes, whoever had been born after that wouldn't have been born. Yeah, that's true. But I'm, what I'm saying is it's good for us that they didn't. <laughs> maybe and maybe Perhaps, perhaps that's a that that future question. I I I, I have my own views on, but but um, you know there there is the question that some ask: Will there be children in heaven? I don't know. 
I can't answer that. The Bible doesn't tell us that implications are no, but some, some argue that there will be. And so perhaps maybe if that's true, we would have been born in a sinless world had they done their work. And we'd be there and hadn't had to struggle with sin. And we wouldn't have all the pain problems we have. So there, there, some make that argument. I don't have any inspired reference to support it, but it's an interesting speculation. Listen to this quote, 759, Desire of Ages. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth. And by the way, casting a pebble to the earth, what kind of law is that? What causes the pebble to fall to the earth? Gravity. gravity. It's not an actual use of power to throw it down. It's a natural result of letting it go. And when he lets go, the natural result is, you'll see, ruin and death, as the previous one said. Uh, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government unless God is acting in justice, then God uses it too. No. That's not what it says. Only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love, and the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral and truth and longer to be the prevailing power. It was God's purposes, purpose to place things on an eternal basis of security. And in the councils of heaven, it was decided that time must be given for Satan to develop the principles which were the foundation of his system of government. And he has claimed that these were superior to God's principles. Time was given for the working of Satan's principles that they might be seen by the heavenly universe. Understand, in order to eliminate sin, it requires more than the elimination of Satan. It requires elimination of the ideas that he has brought forth that have undermined trust in God's order and God's character and God's methods. And the core issue, the core root is imposed law is the way things work in God's government. And God's government is uh, a system of imposed law and inflicted rules. And of course, God's government doesn't work that way. That's Satan's. And so Satan's kingdoms on this earth work that way. And Satan immediately turns around and proclaims, projects his own evil back on God and claims that God's government in heaven also works this way. It's not true. Sunday's lesson, second paragraph, it says, after revealing in the first verses that Jesus is the source and focus of Revelation, Revelation 1, 4, and 5 allude to all three members of the Godhead who are working unitedly uh, to save human beings. The Father is the eternal one who was and is and is to come. The Holy Spirit is working powerfully among the first century churches. His name, the... Uh, is named. Then John recalls the status of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn among the dead, who possesses legal ownership of the planet. Satan's attempt to use the earth to establish his kingdom is ruined. In addition to God's victory over Satan, our creator's shed blood washes away our guilt and shame. So if we must use legal language, then is it true that Jesus has legal ownership of the planet? If we must use legal language, is it true Jesus has legal ownership of the planet? Yes. When did Jesus obtain legal ownership? When he created it. 
Thank you. Absolutely correct. At creation. He is the creator, and by creation it's his. And all things were made by him. And all things are sustained by him. He holds them all together. Jesus has always been the legal owner, and there has never been another legal owner of the planet. Satan's, Satan's claims are false, and he's usurped Adam's position in the order of things, but Adam, as we read earlier, is simply a, uh, a subordinate to Christ, the rightful ruler. Yes, question? Isn't Satan described as the prince of this world in the Bible? Yes, what does that mean, prince of this world? As a legal owner or the prince of the systems of imperial law, fear, selfishness? When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, was he saying, I am not the rightful ruler of the planet? Or my kingdom doesn't operate on the systems this world is operating on? So yes, he's the prince of this system of fear, selfishness, pain, suffering, death, the father of lies, the originator of evil, all the all the horrors we see of sin, he's the owner of. He's the, that's his kingdom. That's what he is lord of. There's no question. And the Bible makes that very clear. So there's a clear distinction between the two systems. But as we read earlier, you know, and in, in, in the prophet Daniel said, the Lord is the one who reigns over all of this. And what you see happening, as we just read in the previous quote, is only happening because God permits it to happen. And why does God permit it to happen? Because God doesn't simply want to destroy Satan, the rebel, the liar, the father of lies. He wants to destroy the lies themselves from the hearts and minds of people and uh, who have believed them and angels who have considered them and needed the truth to settle them and reject them. What about the sentence that says, in addition to God's victory over Satan, our creator shed blood washes away our guilt and shame? What does that mean? Yeah. I mean, these are precious words. We talk about the blood of Jesus. They were precious words. We have songs about being cleansed by the blood, being washed in the fountain, that the power in the blood. Jesus himself uses the metaphor of flesh and blood in John 6 when he says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that has come down from heaven. Your forefathers ate men and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. So this idea of flesh and blood is a very powerful idea. It's a precious idea. But what does it mean? To incorporate his life. The Jewish religious leaders in Christ's day did not like these words of Jesus at all. And even some of his own followers didn't like these words. The Bible says in John 6.60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Why was it a hard teaching? Sound like they they didn't of... understand it. They took them literally. Yeah. yeah. Because they were thinking literal, concretely. They were not thinking figuratively or symbolically or metaphorically. 
Do we have the same problem today in Christianity when people sing about the blood or when the authors write about our guilt and shame is cleansed by the blood? Are they thinking literally and concretely that the blood of Jesus is a payment made and the blood is presented to the Father and the blood is in record books erasing the records of our sins? Are they, are they thinking literally and concretely or, or are they thinking metaphorically and symbolically? Do we ever teach that Jesus presents his blood to the Father to pay for our sins? Has that ever been taught in Christianity? Yeah. What is the reality that the metaphor is actually teaching? Remember, I've said this before. It, metaphor is only metaphor if it correct, connects directly to reality. If, if there's no reality that metaphor is enlightening us to understand, then it's not metaphor. It's fantasy. Metaphor has to connect to reality in order for it to be a metaphor. That's its purpose, to enlighten us to some ob objective reality. So what is the reality that the blood and flesh, the bread and wine metaphor are teaching? That God loved enough to give. Okay, so the blood... So we should incorporate the life of Jesus in our own life, and that's done through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Let's think about this very literally. If you have... If you saw on the screen before you the following letters, T-R-E-E, -E, what would you have before you? Tree. No, you have a word. <laughs> you would not have a tree before you. That's true. Am I right or wrong? Yes. That's correct. So trees. That's a symbolic representation of a tree. That's what it is. The letters in that organization are a symbolic representation of a tree. It is not a tree. That's right. Wow. Okay? The blood and the flesh are symbolic representations of some reality. The question I'm asking you is, what are, and if you can't decode it, if you can't read English, you see the letters T-R-E-E. -E. If you can't read, that means nothing to you. Worse, if you are misreading it, and you read it to say something else, you read it to say food, then you get the wrong conclusion. Symbols are only valuable to the degree they enlighten us to reality. So our goal here is to understand the Bible symbols, the symbols that Jesus himself used, precious symbols, but we want to decode them so that we can read and understand the reality. And in Scripture, blood has a specific meaning. Life. 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 Thank you. You guys are so right. It's exactly right. I'm going to get to the quote. We're going to read that verse in a moment. But do you know that's not how it's taught in the penal legal view? In the penal legal view, and you can find this all over. I don't even have a quote there because it's so commonly taught. The blood represents the death, the shed blood. The death is how it's taught of the, of the animal in Jesus to pay our debt. You will not actually find that in Scripture. That's fraudulent. That's pagan. That's made up. That comes from believing the lie about, God, about God's law. Here's what the Scripture says. You've already said it, Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the creatures in the blood, 
and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves at the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Now, if the life of the creatures in the blood and he's given it the blood, he's giving us then the life. And you could say it is the blood or the life that makes atonement for your life. Couldn't you? So, it's not saying, I didn't read anything in there that says, the death penalty paid provides legal pardon for you. Did you read that in there? No, it doesn't say that, but that's what it's taught. That's what it, how it's taught, because they have a presumption. The law requires punishment. Somebody has to pay the penalty. Somebody has to die in your place. If you don't get somebody to die in your place, the punishment's not paid. This is all Romanized, all imperial. Okay, the NIV, uh, the NIV leads toward, leans toward a forensic with the words atonement, but listen to the Good News translation of the same passage, Leviticus 17.11. The life of every living thing is in the blood, and that is why the Lord has commanded that all blood be poured out at the altar to take away people's sins. Blood, which is life, takes away sins. But we understand blood represents life, not death. What was Jesus saying then when he said we must eat his flesh and drink his blood? The words that I speak unto you are life. They are life indeed. So Jesus is the word made flesh. John 1, right? And thus we take the flesh of Jesus by ingesting the words, the truth, that destroys lies, sets us free, wins us back to trust. That's how we partake the flesh, ingesting the word of God, the truth that Jesus has revealed. And enough truth ingested will eventually win us to trust. And when we are one to trust, what's the natural result of being one to trust? What do you do when you're finally one to trust God? What do you do? You love. You surrender to him. When you're finally one to trust him, you say, I surrender. I open my heart. Uh, you've been standing at the door of my heart and knocking. I've been suspicious. I've been looking out the peephole. I've been checking your ID. <laughs> now I'm going to unlock the door to my heart and let you come in. Isn't that what happens when we're finally one to trust? Right. And when we're one to trust and open the heart, then we receive the entry into our inmost being via the Holy Spirit of Jesus himself. We receive the life of Christ. He comes and lives within us. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature, Peter says. This is the blood, the life of Christ. And once that is happened, that's being reborn, recreated, renewed. We have a new heart and right spirit. We die to the old. We rise to the new. This is the new life. And thus he takes away our shame and guilt by taking away our old terminal existence and giving us a new life, the righteousness of Christ within. This is the reality. The symbols, the bread and the, uh, the flesh are the truths that we have to take to win us to trust. And in one to trust, we actually receive the life of Christ reproduced within us. 
We are still ourselves in the sense that we have our own individuality, our own personhood, our own histories and our own life journeys. None of us who accept Christ and are reborn with Christ-like character have a life history that we were born to a virgin in Bethlehem in a manger. That is not our history. What we receive is a pure, holy, righteous, loving, godly character that we identify with and choose and are empowered to live out in how we govern ourselves. We become Christ-like as we internalize the truth and the love of God that are produced and provided for us by Jesus Christ. This is, this is what it means to feed on him and to ingest him. I didn't know that I had a legal mindset, but I was brought up in the church, in and out of the church. Um, if you have a legal mindset, and I always knew something wasn't right about it, but when you're talking about Jesus knocking on the door of your heart, if you're looking at him as if he's a legal type judge, you know, I'm picturing this as he's got a warrant out for my arrest. I'm not going to open the door. I don't trust you. I don't want you to, you know, I'm going to hide. I'll be over there with the fig leaves or whatever, you know, trying to make sure that... And that's what. That, no, that's that's what exactly right. That is Satan's goal. He wants people to have a legal system of religion in which they actually don't trust God. They trust the legal mechanics to protect them from God. They trust in a legal payment made. They trust in a robe of righteousness to cover them. They, try, they trust in magic blood to erase the record in the record books. They trust in an intercessor to, to protect them from his wrath. They trust in all kinds of things, but they clearly don't trust God. Wow. But lesson, first paragraph says, the book of Revelation gives us a powerful and graphic representation of the great controversy theme, perhaps most dramatically depicted in Revelation 12, 12, which says, therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with having great wrath because he knows his time is short, unquote. It's hard to imagine how anyone can understand anything in scripture apart from the great controversy motif uh, which will climax in, in the last days. Now, my question about wrath. Do you notice Satan comes with great wrath? Revelation 12. In Revelation 14, three angels' message, God's wrath is poured out without mixture. Yes? Bible says that? Mm -hmm. so let's ask a couple questions about these things. If Satan's wrath is able to have its way, if we are not shielded or delivered from Satan's wrath, what is the result? Are we blessed or harmed? If God's wrath is poured out without mixture, if we are not shielded or delivered from God's wrath, what is the result? Are we blessed or harmed? Get your mind around that. If we, if Satan's wrath hits us, we're harmed. If God's wrath hits us, we're harmed. Does that then mean Satan's wrath and God's wrath are manifestations of the same power, no. methods, no. actions, no. but merely with different motives? In other words, both Satan and God use power to harm people. 
But Satan does it from a position of envy, selfishness, hatred, and evil, while God uses, does it from, uh, uses power only in justice to torture and kill judicially required inflictions of punishments. Is that the difference? It's not evil, you're blessed to be out of existence. Yes, that's why I said So is the difference simply the motive and the methods are the same between? They're both using power to, to cause pain and suffering. One is doing it selfishly, one is doing it out of love to bless. No, this is a lie. This is Satan's lie to project his character, methods, and principles upon God so that we interpret God's actions as being satanic in nature and character. While it is true that if we experience unshielded wrath, unshielded, undelivered wrath from either Satan or God, we will be harmed, what their wrath actually is are opposites. They're diametrically opposite to each other. While that, in, while the impact on us is harm, is harm to us, the actions of both God and Satan are the opposite actions. And we can only understand this if we understand the reality of God's design law. Satan's system of government as a creature who cannot create reality is one that, like ours, made up rules enforced through the application of external force. Thus, Satan's wrath is the use of power to punish, to inflict harm upon those whom he is wrathful towards. God's agencies shield us from Satan's use of power, and we see this through history, restraining and holding back the principalities and powers of darkness, the hedge of protection, and so forth. Uh, all through history, you see God acting to restrain and hold back Satan's power. God, however, is the creator, the builder of reality, and his laws are the laws upon which life and health operate. If we break God's laws, we take ourselves out of harmony with life and health and automatically suffer pain injury, and death, if not healed and restored by the creator. So while Satan uses power to inflict harm, get your mind around this now, God uses power to restrain the harm and to heal, restore, recreate, renew, and rebuild. While Satan's wrath is the active use of power, God's wrath is the cessation of the use of power. It's just letting go. Satan's wrath, active use of power. God's wrath is the stopping of his use of power that he has been expending, which has been mercifully shielding us from the full consequences of what sin would do to us without his active use of power. But when the wicked harden themselves and permanently reject God's mercy, he in harmony with their character and excuse me, in harmony with their character and their choice, and in harmony with his character and methods of love and liberty, sets them free, stops using power to reap what they have chosen. And that's separation from him. And now they experience the pain, suffering, and harm that he has been shielding them from all along. So both God's wrath and Satan's wrath result in harm to us. 
But Satan's wrath is the active use of energy to inflict harm, while God's wrath is the cessation of power that has been holding the harm at bay. Questions about that before I give you evidence to prove it. So God is respecting our freedom of choice. Do you recognize, this is a critical difference. I will tell you the whole Christian world practically, practically, there are small slivers within the Christian world that don't, but almost the entire Christian world teaches that God's wrath, it functions like Satan's wrath. Cessation means to stop, to let go, to cease, okay. to abandon, see if you see to surrender, yeah. to let them go, to give them up, okay. yeah. <laughs> to, to stop using his power. That's what it means. So this is what Paul describes in Romans 1. Let's look at Romans 1, starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For they knew God. Now notice, again, I'm highlighting certain words because he, this is not only showing what God does, it shows why he does it. The truth about God is revealed. They reject truth. They reject the knowledge of God. Okay? For when we know about God, they neither glorify him as God nor give thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and fo foolish hearts were darkened. These are consequences. These are results. This is what happens when you reject truth. Your mind becomes darkened. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men, birds, and animals. This is law of worship. What happens to the, the being created in the image of God when he begins to worship beetles and, and flies and frogs and other things? He becomes debased. His mind becomes foolish. This is the natural result. Therefore, God, this is God's action now. Therefore, God gave them up. God gave them over to their sinful desires. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Again, this is why it's happening. They won't accept truth and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to depraved mind. Notice. Over and over again, Paul's describing reality. God's a source of truth. If you reject the truth and worship lies, you become changed by those lies, and you be hard in your heart. You become foolish, and God will eventually respect your choice, and he will let you go. That's God's wrath. Commenting on these verses, there's a book, Bible commentary called Hard Sayings of the Bible by InterVarsity Press, and this is what these Bible scholars say about these verses. In some sense, God's wrath is built into the very structure of created reality, design law. In rejecting God's structure and establishing our own, in violating God's intention for creation and substituting our own intention, we cause our own disintegration. The human condition, which Paul describes in Romans 1, 18 through 32, is not something caused by God. The phrase revealed from heaven, where heaven is the typical Jewish substitute for the word God, does not depict some kind of divine intervention, but rather the inevitability of human debasement, which results when God's will, built into the created order, design law, is violated. Since the created order has its origin in God, Paul can say that the wrath of God is now constantly being revealed from heaven. It is revealed in the fact that the rejection of God's truth, Romans 1, 18-20, that is the truth about God's nature and will leads to futile thinking, idolatry, perversion of the God-intended sexuality, and relational moral brokenness. 
the expression God gave them over or handed them over, which appears three times in the passage, supports the idea that sinful perversion of human existence, through the resulting from human decisions, is to be understood ultimately as God's punishment, which we in freedom bring on ourselves. In light of these reflections, the common notion that God punishes or blesses in direct proportion to our sinful or good deeds cannot be maintained. God loves us with an everlasting love, but the rejection of that love separates us from the life, his, from its life-giving power. The result is disintegration and death. This is not Adventist Christian commentary, and it describes truth, universal truth of God's kingdom. That is the outworking of design law. And now, with that in mind, as we're talking about wrath, consider this commentary by Ellen White on the final plagues, which are the outpouring of God's wrath, the seven bowls of wrath, which are going to hit the earth, and what she taught, which is which was rejected in 1888. And listen to this commentary about the judgments of God. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then, if those who have been the object of a special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be, for Satan has come down with great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short, and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we have ever dreamed of. Hasn't our church read that? Yes. Of course they've read it. And they write all types of treatises about how it means that God will punish. Because they have the imposed law lie. We'll close on this. What about Jesus as our substitute? Did he experience God's wrath as our substitute? Yes. Yeah, he was Yes, he did. Matthew twenty seven forty six. My God, my God, why are you torturing me? No. <laughs> Why are you using heavenly power to hurt me? No, it's God's wrath. God's wrath is the cessation of power, the letting go. Why have you abandoned me? Why have you given me up? Why have you forsaken me? And Paul makes this explicitly here. We just read the three verses in Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, where he said God gave them up or God gave them over. Paul uses the exact same Greek speaking of Jesus at the cross in Romans 4.25, but it's translated in the English different, but it's the exact same from Romans 1. Because of our sins, he was handed over to die, and he was raised to life in order to put us right with God. But that handed over is the exact same Greek. So yes, Jesus was let go by his Father so that we could be restored to unity. He experienced the wrath of God upon him. Does that mean that the wrath of God causes the suffering? No. Does that mean that Jesus experienced the exact same thing as the wicked in the end? Because the Revelation chapter 14, the three angels' message, the wrath of God is poured out with that mixture. This is the cup that Jesus prayed would pass from him. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup of what? The cup of your wrath poured out with that mixture. The wicked experience the exact same action from God that Jesus experienced on the cross. 
God acted toward both Jesus at the cross and the wicked in the end exactly the same. He ceases using power and surrenders both to reap what they have chosen and recognize the whole history of Jesus leading up to the cross. We've already read some of the quotes where he said to Peter and to Pilate, Jesus freely chose to go through the cross. It was his will to go through the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross, it says. It was his mission to save us, and he could only do it through the cross, and God surrendered him to reap what Jesus chose, to love fully and perfectly, destroy the infection of sin, and restore God's living law into the humanity that he took upon himself and rise again as the second head, the second Adam, the new head of humanity, the source of salvation. God treats the wicked in the end exactly the same. He surrenders them completely, stops using his power, and lets them reap exactly what they have chosen. But they have not chosen perfect, sinless love. They have not chosen trust in the Father. They have not chosen to rejoice in righteousness. They have not chosen truth. They have chosen lies, fear, selfishness, hardness of heart, distrust, and they reap in their being the full weight of unremedied and uninterceded with sin that crushes them with terrible anguish, guilt, shame, and they have a weeping and gnashing of teeth, and they beg for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from him who sits on the throne. This is reality. This is understanding the truth of God's kingdom and what he's seeking to do. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are our creator who is love and has created the universe to operate in harmony with your character of love. Help us get this right. Help us to present the truth of your eternal living law of love in the setting of the great controversy and to eliminate from all of our thinking, our hearts, minds, attitudes, teachings, resources, all this Roman imperialistic distortion that just prevents us from, from shining the eternal gospel in its fullest glory. We want to do that at this time in history because we want to hasten the day and see you come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.